I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This episode is so sacred, I'm barely going to say anything for the introduction. My guest is Lindsay Magner, and wait till you hear what she has to talk about. The theme is pretty much about what happens when we break free of living a life that we thought we were supposed to be in. That's all I'm going to tell you. Let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so excited about our guest for today, Lindsay Magner. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. I'm so honored to be here with you. I'm happy to have you. I'm honored to have you. Lindsay, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I am a miracle. <laughs> I, I get lightheaded just sitting with the fact that I'm here speaking with you today, quite honestly. I'm a, I just received my master's in marriage and family therapy, and I'm a counselor by trade. That might be what people expect, right, to hear. But 10 years ago, I was dying. And now I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I am bowled over by that fact on a regular basis. Let me start with, and we don't have to go into the whole history of your disorder and whatnot. But what I want to ask you is how, as you said, you were, you're a miracle. It's amazing that you're here. Can you talk about the steps that you went through to drop into yourself and to, to become recovered? And just the things you learned along the way, because you learned a lot about yourself. I did. I love that you asked the steps to get recovered, right? Rather than what the disorder looked like, because we know. I was just going to say, Lindsay, we all know what an eating disorder looks like. So, and I know they're unique to everyone, but there's a lot of similarities. So we don't need another story about how, you know, when the eating disorder started and what happened. Let's, let's talk from recovery steps forward. Yeah, I had the unbelievable blessing of, of happening upon a group of women who, who held me in my darkest moment and mothered me back to myself. My parents are incredible humans and they did the best that they can. And there's a lot of intergenerational trauma. And what I was needing, what I was craving, what I was making myself small in order to try to earn was freely given by this just sort of happenstance group of women who said, we're going to do the scarier thing today and we are going to love you through it. And so the idea that we could recover in isolation, right, is preposterous. Um, what I needed was to let myself fall into the arms of people who loved me just because I was a being on the planet. And that enabled me to, you know, to have the conversations with the inner child and to do the EMDR and to get still and to listen to Holy Spirit and to eat the fucking sandwich, right? And to get sober and to go to recovery meetings. The things that I thought I could not do, they, they showed me that I could. 
I want to point something out that you said, which is the most important. Well, it, it is critical. You were surrounded by peers and therapists when you said that that loved you just for being, meaning no expectations, no no cultural norms placed upon you, no standards, no assumptions, just Lindsay in whatever way, shape, or form that comes out, whatever emotion that brings, whatever laughter, crying, you were allowed to be you 100%. And that is a gift. And I also want to say, I love that you say you love your parents because parents can't always give that gift because you need the healthy separation of a therapist who is a little bit removed from you to be able to sort of take all of that in when it's dealing with an eating disorder, but continue on with your journey. Well, and Lord knows I put them through it, right? But we are limited in the way that we are limited. Just because of, right, combination of nurture and nature, I got an idea when I was really, really little that I had to constantly shape shift in order to achieve goodness and love on the planet. Again, going through the idea, because it takes more than love. I, I had a lot of love in my life and I still had an eating disorder. So it takes more than love. You did say something else What that, that I want to make sure we hit on is talking about like doing the scariest thing during the day and, and finding that you can actually live through it. So, so talk about some of the, the things, the steps that you took in order, because they're hard, they're terrifying, they're humbling. Sometimes they bring out the worst in us and we actually still move through them. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so when I say I was loved back to myself, I think it's important to distinguish between love as a feeling, right? And love as an action. Because while my partner at the time and the therapists and the women around me did delight in me, right? In a way that I had never been delighted in. There was also a lot of challenging and pushing and encouraging. I remember just came to me uh, standing in front of a full length mirror in a bathing suit when I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to go swimming, just, you know, weeping from the, the, the pit of your abdomen, just trying to settle in to, to the feeling I had inside and connecting it to the body I saw in front of me, um, which felt, it wasn't about like, here is what I'm looking at and these things are displeasing to me. It was too painful to live inside my own body. And so to stand there and notice that I had one and to see the feelings that came up was a really profound thing for me and has been thematic throughout my recovery to go like, oh shit, I have a body in which I live. I am not just a crazy brain running around trying to manage my life because dissociating was a way that I kept myself safe. It's incredibly adaptive. And when you're hungry, it's easier to dissociate. I also want to point out, not only did you get to the place where you're like, oh shit, I have a brain, but you're like, oh shit, I have a heart and a soul and I have desires and cravings. And so take us to the point where there was a lot of awakening and awareness that was happening as you moved through treatment. And there were many things about self that you recognized. Yes, I, and I think that um, that fast forwarding might be a good idea because what what I always wanted, um, I always took my cues from other people to tell me what I desired and what I wanted, except for I knew I wanted to be a mother, and being hungry and high for a long time. I was told that that might not be a possibility for me. And after I got well, I, can, I got pregnant with our first kid pretty quickly. 
And I threw myself into recovery and I worked in inpatient treatment and I built a life. And then I threw myself with my partner into raising what ultimately was three babies. And young motherhood comes with what it comes with. And so it was a beautiful miracle. And I also was in a circumstance where I had three babies in four years and my spouse was traveling for work on a regular basis. And what looked like ED behavior for a long time translated in a lot of ways into the same patterns, um, but they looked instead of being hungry and throwing up, it looked like perfectionism and dressing the babies in the same outfits and reading all of the parenting books and keeping the house completely perfect at all times and doing whatever I could to not have to sit in the fact that I had gotten what I wanted, the one thing I knew I wanted, and it was still too hard to bear it. I loved him too much. It hurt too much. I was too tired. And so I just got robot. For a long time. And then my, and then I hit a critical mass in my marriage where my, my partner and I, who had been together since we were 18 and 24, and, and he was really the reason why I got well in the first place, because he was the one thing that was consistent. I knew he was never going anywhere until he said, I'm not going to watch you die anymore. You have to go to treatment where this sort of pseudo-mutuality, this this conflict avoidance, this way we sort of danced around one another with pleasantries hit this place where we just, we couldn't abide it anymore. And I went into trauma therapy and he went into trauma therapy and we went into couples counseling together and we started doing a lot of work. And I went into graduate school and as you know, all sorts of shit comes up right? When you're learning to be a therapist about all of the things that you have not tended to, and then coronavirus hit. And so the world came to a standstill. And I was learning how to really feel how to be a person in this embodied way. And everything was quiet. And shit started to come up for me. (laughs) Well, I'm going to, I'm going to say, instead of shit started coming up, I'm going to say your true self came up. I'm sure it was scary. Like, by the way, we are all walking through life thinking we are, uh, we are one way. And I don't mean one dimensional, but we feel like we have a path that we're going on and, and it's pretty well laid out to some degree with flexibility of some changes, but pretty much we know how, how our day is going to end. You suddenly came to some realizations that was going to change that path. And I think that's pretty terrifying. So can you continue? Yes. Um, Terrifying and liberating in a way that is difficult to verbalize. So um, we don't have three hours to speak. So what I will say is that the stars aligned and I did enough work And I happened to be um, engaging in a new friendship in a way that one day during the pandemic, I, (laughs) I said, oh my God, this woman I've been hiking with is not just a friend of mine. I think I'm in love with her, which was which was the scary part initially, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't that I thought, oh my God, I'm gay so much as how did I not know this about myself? The thing that was liberating was that all my life, I was convinced that I was from birth inherently broken. There was just always something that wasn't quite right. And it was easy to go like, well, okay, like I'm cutting and I'm starving and I'm drinking and I'm using drugs and right. And then I got well. But then that inherent sense of brokenness remained. And the one thing that I would never, you know, I would do all of this work in therapy, but the sex piece was not happening. It was off the table. 
I had violent sexual trauma in my past. I grew up in a Catholic family. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s where there was no queer representation whatsoever. And so there was just this sense that like, this is a painful piece. The fact that I, I love my husband more than anything, but I have to leave myself in order to be intimate with him. That is something that is wrong with me. And when I fell in love with this woman in my life, it was like, oh my God. And really I like was praying and I was running and I was crying. Oh my God, I'm not broken, I'm just gay. <laughs> okay, we can work with this, right? By the way, I love the way you say that. I'm not broken, I'm just gay. I mean, there's a levity, is that the right word, levity? I had to think about that. And it's true. And when we're trying so hard to fit into society, whether it's our sexuality, anything, our religion, our personalities, our introversion, our extroversion, if we don't check every box, we hide parts of self because we think there's something wrong with them. So we keep them hidden. There's nothing wrong with anyone. Nobody's broken. You just are dot, dot, dot. Right? Right. I have this, this realization and then like, and then what was really scary was going, oh God, so now what? This is something that I want to, I want to stop and ask about because these are some hard life conversations you're about to have. These are some hard realizations. These are very life altering. How did you go about this and stay recovered and not fall back into the eating disorder. This is what I talk about with clients. My life has not been perfect since I recovered, far from it. And I have a pretty phenomenal life. I had I had to get through each crisis and moment by being in it. How how did you do it? Cuz this could have been one of those one of those slippery slope areas where it's too much conflict or it's too, it's too much truth. You know, how did you navigate through that, Lindsay? I love this question, Karen. Within the context of my friendship with the woman who ultimately ended up being my wife, she, she passed me Audre Lorde's essay on the erotic. And that cracked something open in me, particularly the idea that anxiety, right, is just erotic energy that we have not sort of lived into. And when I say erotic, I don't just mean the sexual piece, right? I mean the vitality that, that comes with being alive. And that is what I was so frustrated with years into my recovery when I was roboting through motherhood was, is this it? Did I work this hard? Did I gather this much support to just be numb inside my life? And I was so delighted by the fact that whatever our relationship was doing, even prior to me realizing I was queer, was waking up inside my body. The cooking and dancing and moving through the world felt pleasurable to me, that I could channel things that activated me in this way where I was asking my body what it was needing and wanting, which was a totally new experience for me in my mid thirties, holding on to that as a, um, as sort of a cornerstone helped me to walk through what I was going to have to walk through. And I remember calling my best friend, Michael and saying, I am gay and I am about to blow up my life. And he said, sugar, you're not going to blow up your life. And I said, I might blow up my life. And he said, what you need to understand is that the people who love you have the capacity to forgive you and that you don't always have to walk through everything in a perfect way. I, I took this information to my husband because what recovery means for me, what sobriety means for me is 
in addition to this true erotic, right, embodied piece is that I'm telling myself and others the truth. And so everything had to be above board for me to be able to sleep at night, right? With respect and remorse for those who actually identify as bisexual, I was one of those gays who had to park there for about five minutes. And so, because I've been sleeping with men my whole life. And so I sat with him in our bed and I could barely get the words out. And I said, I think it might be bisexual. And he started laughing in this loving way. And he goes, well, that tracks. There was something for him that was liberating in this knowledge because there had been this wall we couldn't cross in this relationship for so long. And I said, in addition to that, I don't think I can just park in this knowledge. I think that I need to explore this with this woman. He said, I support you. Can you imagine that? I would expect that. I want to live in a world where I expect people to be open-minded and curious and say, let's talk about it. I support it. By the way, that doesn't mean that your husband didn't have pain or confusion or anger that we can hold more than one emotion at once. And unfortunately, I don't know if the rest of the world would have responded that way, but that's what I would have, that's what I hoped you would say. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And it's sort of a beacon throughout my recovery, right? In these moments where the, the part of me that is so deeply self-loathing gets really loud. Um, it has been brought to my attention that the folks I gather toward me love me in that sort of a way in that open, curious, right? Like if, if the people I am gathering toward me uh, show up with that kind of openness and curiosity, then I must not be a total piece of shit, right? So he and I went to therapy. We went to our couples counselor about it. And I was so terrified. I was thinking like, he's gonna renege on this, right? Like I need to go and explore this relationship with her and we're gonna go to therapy and like the real truth is gonna come out. But he was like, I, I'm so happy that you have dropped into this truth. And, um, and, that's, and, and so what, what frustrated me when we finally came out is that everybody went, well, she's been having this affair. It, it wasn't. He, we had support and I had permission to sort of start dipping my toes into what it would look like to, to live my queerness in action. And so the following year or so was the hardest and the best of my life and the hardest and the best in my relationship with him because it broke everything, but we had committed to one another. And so there were so many conversations our sweet babies would be running around and we would both be on the floor incapacitated by our own grief. Um, and they would be like, mommy's crying again, daddy's crying again, right? It's, you know, and, and I, I love that. I love that for them. I love to look back on that and say like, I lived in a childhood home where feelings were off the table, right? Like if it's not joyful or pleasant, and even if it's joyful, it needs to be reined in, right? it's off the table. And we just felt what we felt. And, you know, and obviously, like, we, we wanted to support and love and shelter them and answer questions and show up in a way that was developmentally appropriate for them. But there are just lots of feelings being felt in our home. And we sort of set a precedent for that in that moment. And so as he and I were walking through this unbelievably painful, beautiful, liberating process of uncoupling. She moved in with us and, and then the three of us figured out how to navigate this relationship. And because we were all cohabitating and right, you know, like in trying to figure out how she going from being in her late twenties and single and starting medical school to a mother, a stepmother of three children, um, while we were navigating that, then it was sort of like, well, 
<laughs> people are going to wonder who this woman is. And so we need to start to some degree telling family and telling close friends what's up. And that was really fucking hard <laughs> because it's fascinating what boxes people need you to be in in order for your personhood to be palatable to them. And what I feel so grateful to my former spouse for is that he stood at the helm of this restructuring and said, one day he said to me, listen, we live in a diamond castle. We have built a diamond castle. Diamonds are impenetrable. The walls of this castle are impenetrable. Nobody gets to come in unless we say so. And nobody understands what is going on in this context except for us. And fuck them, basically. <laughs> Which was helpful for me because there's still that little girl who needs to be good going like, my parents are in pieces and my siblings are confused and the neighbors don't talk to us anymore. And half the people who encounter us think that all of us are sleeping together. And, you know, just all the stories, right, that people are telling. I want to point out one of the hardest things, especially when somebody has had an eating disorder or substance abuse, anything where you are sort of sheltering yourself from others' criticism, living your whole life, meaning your whole self, and saying, I'm actually hanging up that part of me where I'm no longer worrying about what the world thinks of me. I'm a good person. I'm a loving person. If you want to judge me, if you want to make up stories like all three of us are sleeping in the same bed, and by the way, Lindsay, even if you are, who cares? Right. That's a powerful transformation that I'm sure did not come easy, but I'm also assuming you have never felt lighter in your life. And it's so interesting because when I was at my sickest in my eating disorder, I've never felt so heavy and weighed down. As I recovered and started living my true self, that's when I started feeling a lightness that had nothing to do with calories or body size. And so I, I'm, I'm not sure if you can resonate with that. Oh my gosh, so much. I started using the word buoyancy and the, and the word effervescence in the context of my, you know, of, of therapy when I was walking through the beginning parts of this where I would, you know, like, I just didn't have space for shame anymore. I just didn't have space for it because I couldn't believe what, what I had manifested, even when I didn't think I was worthy of it. And so the, the opinions of the outside world were so inconsequential at that moment because look at what is happening in my home. Look at what is happening in my life. And in my body, you know, last night, Kat and I were lying in bed and she was talking about the parts of my body that she loves. And it was fascinating to me how quickly, how by rote, even after all the things I have just said to you, my gut check reaction was to say like, oh, I've breastfed three babies and I look like a 12 year old boy and they're too small and all, you know, and I stopped and thought, oh my God, I love this body. This body that I live in, <laughs> it has nothing to do with what it looks like, right? I think about what this body has endured, the starving and the purging and the cutting and the substance use, and then the building of the children that lived within it and the baby I lost and the way I fed them for the first two years of their lives. And here I am. And I can walk around in the sunshine and I can run and play with my children and I can enjoy good food and sex and the feel of the air on my, it's just, it is, it is spiritual. It is fucking sacred is what it is that I, that I have put it through 
what I have put it through. And it still shelters and holds and wakes me up in that way. My God, what a miracle my body is. Right. I also want to point out that you could have this body and simply have a different narrative about it. And when I say simply, I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek, because just using the example you said a few minutes ago, when you said, when she was talking about how beautiful your body is and you were like, oh, this body, like I breastfed three children and, you know, I look like a boy or whatever. And I'm paraphrasing, or you could say this amazing body breastfed three children nourished them and and I don't mean that like our whole world can be just flipped into happy mode of like turn that frown upside down and everything will be perfect but the reality is it is in our head how we want to live out our life is up to us and your body is still the same whether you went down the rabbit hole of being like oh three kids and breastfeeding and this or wow, three kids. And and I'm just using that one small example, still the same body, Lindsay. It just depends which path you want to go down. It's not about the body at all. And it's completely, absolutely about the body. And what I mean by that is, you know, with with a 20 year history of dysmorphic, right? Viewing of what I look like in the mirror, I still am not positive that I have an accurate view of what other people see, right? Of like the aesthetic of the way I fit into the fat phobic, straight sized cultural norms of what it means to be a coat hanger of a woman and therefore beautiful. But the reason why none of that feels like something I can waste any time on is because I live inside myself today. You know, what does it feel like What is the difference between anxiety and grief and disappointment and loneliness as it manifests in my chest and in my belly and in my hands, right? As I'm walking through the world, how does emotion show up? How does joy show up? I, that's the eroticism, right? How does, how does moving through the world and experiencing my lived day-to-day life show up in my body. That for me is the key to recovery, right? Like not what I think about it, not what other people might think about it, not the stories I'm telling myself about it, not the way I have adapted to cope with it, but like noticing with curiosity, witnessing from behind, right? Like all of the jibber jabber in my head. Um, What is my body telling? The, the other thing, and I don't, I don't mean to take this to an extreme, but you, you've used the word like eroticism and you're saying you're not talking about it as just like physical intimacy and stuff like that. One of the things, and I, I don't know what just made me go here, but one of the things that when you are recovered and you are fully present, a, a touch on the hand can feel sensual. I think that the world has a has a warped view when we talk about erotic and sensuality and what it means. When you are recovered and you are present, like I said, a touch can turn into something sensual or erotic. And I think we 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 shy away from this conversation of talking about it because people might think it's a taboo subject. And it's not at all. It's actually really, really beautiful. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yes. Everybody should read Audre Lorde's essay <laughs> because she talks about how our culture has sort of warped and, uh, and like profanized, I'm making up words now, the, the idea has, has, has gotten reductive about what eroticism can mean when in essence, it just means this sort of embodied vitality Um, I think that sex is a taboo subject, sexuality is a taboo subject, and God knows when we're talking about the queer experience, it is just fodder for, um, for politic, right? Like it's all, it's just so over-politicized right now, we are denying the actual individual experience. But so, so sex is a taboo thing, but pleasure 
is a taboo thing as well, particularly for women, right? We are taught to perform our pleasure, right? Instead of to claim it. And, and, that, and that intersects with sexuality, but particularly for those of us who have eating disorders, right? You know, you think about the way moving our bodies can be a pleasurable thing. Taking a walk and being mindful about noticing what's happening around us, or we can run until we cannot move anymore because we are driving our bodies into being small. You know, we can sit with people in front of a meal that we have cooked and enjoy it. Or I can bake six dozen cookies and give them to everybody else in this act of self-denial, right? Like there is something to me that feels deliciously subversive about claiming my own pleasure in a culture that tells women, uh, particularly if you grew up in religion, right? Like that the ultimate, most sacred, most holy thing we can do is self-deny, right? Like our job is to be a servant to, (laughs) to the white man, to the patriarchy. That's our job. And the, and the truth of the matter is that when I live into this erotic experience and when I let myself be touched and when I glance across the room and have an erotic sexual even exchange with my partner in the kitchen, like your question was sort of like, it doesn't have to be sexual, but what feels really fun in my life today, right? Coming from a place where where sex and sexuality was really performative. When I started engaging with men in this way, I, you know, like I was a quick study on how I was supposed to show up in this, you know, like yes. where there will be a whole day where we won't even touch one another. And and the whole day will be a sexual act right? Like, like the glance across the kitchen, you know, I will look over, I'll be chopping vegetables and she will be drooling at me, right? Like, like the way that my hands are moving and it's the same thing, you know, like I'll watch her throw sutures (laughs) when she's practicing that, that intersection is so interesting that, um, that how brilliant she is, you know, like it's, it's super hot to me when she starts, you know, doing math in her head, when the, when the kids are asking a question or when she'll, when, you know, complete a crossword puzzle really quickly. And I think there is nothing performative about this. The way that my body ignites just sort of engaging with the self of her feels really profound to me. And there's such freedom for my former spouse, right? And, and, and not taking personally the fact that I could not show up for him in that way our relationship has healed so much as a result of that. You know, we, Catherine and I got married recently and Sheldon walked me down the aisle and read the passage of, uh, from the Velveteen Rabbit about becoming real to us. And Kat gave vows to him about the way he welcomed her into our family. And then said like, we don't know Like, what do we call you? It's not brother. It's not friend, right? It's not, there's no word for for the way he has shown up and delighted in the being of us and our relationship. And there's just been so much freedom without the trappings of me needing to um, perform wifely duties as I understood them and perform my pleasure and objectify myself, not because he ever asked me to do those things, but because that was what my training looked like. There is such freedom for the both of us, for him having suffered with me through so many years of being so sick and small, of me living into this erotic truth, that everybody just gets to be the fuck they are. And we have little children we're shepherding into the world as well. And the modeling for them of that, right? What we got a lot, particularly from family early on was like, oh God, what about the children? You can't get divorced. It will ruin them. You can't bring this random home wrecking woman into your marriage. It will ruin them. You know, ruin, ruin, ruin. Are the children okay? Are the children okay? And I, I thought, I, I showed up 
in this robotic, disembodied, mothering as a, you know, again, as an act of performance, reality for so long with an empty cup, just trying to pour into these precious beings from an empty cup. And now that I am living into my own erotic reality, that I am feeding my own sense of self, my own sense of worth, my own sense of pleasure, I'm just overflowing onto them all the time. They're just drowning in all this goodness. And I'm not giving it to them first. I'm giving it to me first. And that, uh, that also is so counterculture, right? Like mommy's not supposed to take care of mommy. Mommy's supposed to either drive herself into the ground or depend upon, you know, like I'm going to drive myself into the ground until Mother's Day when they're supposed to make me breakfast in bed. Fuck that. <laughs> I also want to point out, instead of actually using your words, ruining the kids, you are stopping the cycle of having your own children now live out this performative life, which may or may not have ended up in substance abuse, self-harm, eating disorder, because they were performing life as they were modeled. And so by being truthful and authentic and genuine and living in yourself and living in your truth, you cannot ruin anybody. You are just being the truth. Right. And we talk a lot in early recovery about, um, you know, when when I am self-critical, I am more likely to be critical of others. When I am perfectionistic, I'm more likely to have very high expectations of others. When I am allowing myself to feel the full scope of my feelings, and like you said, all at the same time, right? It's not a binary. I can feel gratitude and grief at the same time. I can feel joy and despair, oddly, at the same time. Um, modeling that for them, um, or like enabling my own ability to make space for that, for curiosity and acceptance in self helps me to show up in relationship with others in a way that, that is curious and open. Giving myself that wiggle room, giving myself that grace, just again, like the, the, the cup metaphor, right? Like it enables me to, to go like, okay, you are having a giant tantrum about things I can't even understand because you were in a brainstem moment right now. Um, what would I need? What would I, what, what I have needed when I was your age? How can I show up in a way that honors both of our experience? There is something so healing for the little girl inside me to let my children have their own experience and just to go like, huh, tell me more about that. I also want to say if you had continued living in this robotic performance lifestyle, your children, that is what they would be receiving. Very cookie cutter. I'm going to use the word interventions to help soothe them or if they were if they were throwing tantrums, which children do, everything would have been robotic, including what they were receiving. Even though you thought you were doing the quote unquote right thing. I'm mom. I have three children. I have a husband. All this. And I also want to say little souls are very intuitive. And so your three beautiful beings, you may have never shown it, but they would have sensed something. They are brilliant. And so Again, you're not ruining your children by being your true self. You're showing them that the only way to be is to be your true self. Otherwise, you're going to live in anxiety and depression and want. Yes. No, I, my brother not long ago was sort of just like checking in on how we're doing regarding the children and was like, I just, you know, I, I have it. I have concern about like, you know, just the sense of responsibility for their well-being, right? In accordance with how we box in what a healthy family is supposed to look like. And I said as much to him, children come out, right? In 
in this open, curious way that we are trained out of and then have to fight for, right? Again, in, in this convoluted way of walking through the world. Never at any point were they like, this is weird. There's like this lady in here now. This is weird. I mean, like the, our almost four-year-old was not even two when Catherine came into the mix. And it's just, it's Lindsay mama and cat mama. She doesn't know any different. She doesn't know any better, right? Quote, unquote. Um, watching the way they have just received this, like, of course, there's another loving parent in this home. Of course, has been such a healing thing for the parts of all three of their grown-ups. Any niggling leftover, you know, internalized homophobia or criticism about, you know, being like a weird polycule family, or we just watch the way the children respond. We, you know, like culture has not fucked them up yet. And it and it's so neat to see the way they have just they've pulled her in like she was meant to be here the whole time because she was. And I play this game at bedtime with the kids where I, uh, we just, we call it the question game um, where I'll say like, what's something kind you witnessed today? What's something you feel really proud of? What's something that feels really scary? And I, I said, what is your happiest memory to our oldest? And she said, the day you brought our other mother into our lives. I want to ask a question and I'm, I'm very aware of the time, but I just can't stop Lindsay. I want to ask a question. And if you can imagine, if you can, what would this narrative of your life, of your daughter, of your children, of yourself, of your husband, what would it have looked like if instead of having the courage to voice what was happening inside you, what you were feeling, you pushed it all down with eating disorder behaviors and said, nope, I have to keep going. This is the way it's supposed to go. Where do you think, what do you think your daughter would say when you asked these amazing questions? We spoke about this recently, Pat and I actually, what would it have looked like if I had honored the ideas of the outside world and just said like, hey, I think I'm queer. Okay, let's just continue on with life as usual. Um, the thing I think that freaks me out the most is that like, we could have, we could have. That's why I asked the question. You And 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 I, I want to be very, very... Um, sensitive to the people that are listening to this right now that probably have tears streaming down their face because they are, they maybe have acknowledged that they're queer and then they say, okay, we'll put that back in a box and keep going on with life. So you're right. You very well could have. Yeah. And I, I need to have this caveat for a second is that for the past year and a half, I have been counseling conservative Christian undergraduates. And over the course of time, a lot of my caseload have come out to me as queer. And I want to honor the fact that I came out in a place in my adulthood under an umbrella of privilege, such that I can say like, you know, pleasure is an act of subversion and damn the man and fuck the patriarchy and write all of these things that are really easy for a comfortable white, right, cis woman to say, um, who has established differentiation from her family of origin such that like doesn't really matter. Um, you know, these kids I'm counseling are 20 and might be cast out, right? We don't all have, it's like, I want to honor the courageous steps we took. And I also think it's important, like you said, to make space for the people. Um, it's not weakness. It's not like you're not, you're not brave like I was brave, right? Like everybody's circumstance is different and claiming this liberation, right? Um, may look incremental and it may look different um, to other people, but just but to finish this point about what it could have looked like, um, we would have been okay, just like we were okay before. Sheldon and I are uh, super close. He is my family. That's why we still live in parent together. 
And we could have continued to sort of tiptoe around these truths that were sort of partially explicit, but mostly implicit. And we could have gone through the motions with our children and they would have inherited that sense of heaviness you spoke about earlier. And that almost breaks my heart more than saying like, oh, well, I would have gone back out and, or I would have been purging in the back. You know, it's like I had gotten well enough that that wasn't an option for me anymore. But the, that sort of tedium, right? That, that white knuckling, the day-to-day life, that tension that these brilliant intuitive children, right? Would have felt breaks my heart. And I'm so grateful that they don't have to grow up like that. Lindsay, I'm so grateful for you. I, I'm, I'm grateful for your, your narrative. I'm grateful for your experience, for your courage. And I do want to be clear, like you said, there are circumstances that not everybody can do everything. So it's not if you can't come out, if you can't do this, you can't do that. That doesn't mean you don't still have courage. But from your story, there was a lot of courage. And I hate to bring this to an end, but I have to. So before I end, is there anything else you would like to say that I didn't ask you or something that you thought of? No. I have enjoyed this so, so much and, uh, and just appreciate sharing space with you. Lindsay, it, is, it has been an honor and a pleasure, and I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Thank you, Karen. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next time. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.